Welcome, Jim and Al. We've been writing several pieces in Strategy Page about countries having problems building warships around the world. And it's not just one. It seems like there are several that are struggling, including the U.S. You want to sort of do a broad brush of it for us, Jim? Yeah, the main problem is the United States no longer has a shipbuilding industry. It hasn't had for oh, decades. And, and uh, the only people really building ships are the uh, handful of uh, naval yards. Uh, as Al will be able to get into in detail, we, uh, we basically turned the uh, – stopped most of the, uh, the Navy-owned yards and turned it over to uh, Free Enterprise. But the problem was, and this is the key problem be- between not just America and China, but America, China, South Korea, and Japan. And one thing those three countries have in common is they're all major ship producers. Now, a problem we hear about with American shipbuilding is we can't find skilled people. Well, that's not a problem in China, Japan, and South Korea. In fact, until recently, South Korea, well, actually, within the last 10 years, South Korea, uh, Japan, and uh, China were trading places for first place. And I think they're still the top three. China is now in first place. But China has plenty of skilled labor. Uh, the other thing they don't have is uh, since World War II, we've built up this huge infrastructure of regulations and various political you know, uh, obligations, which have interfered with the, the building of ships. Uh, we've come to accept the idea that uh, a, a, a private contractor, so to speak, can uh, bid low, get the contract, of course, these days, that's a, that's a given, you know, and then basically uh, get away with uh, charging higher prices because of unforeseen circumstances. Sometimes they are unforeseen because Congress will interfere. The Navy has lost its ability to basically make up its mind, and that's how we got the Zumwalt and the, uh, the LC, the, uh, you know, the uh, littoral combat ship, the LCS. And we finally learned our lesson. We're building a new class of frigates. But instead of designing one from scratch, which we're woefully unable to do, we're basically going to apparently buy – what is it, Albert? The, the Italian one or the French one? Um, I think it's the Italian one. Yeah, the Italians are doing very well, even though they are still – they still have a, a civilian shipbuilding industry. But they and, uh, and France have maintained their shipbuilding shops in, their, in Germany too, and they're still getting a lot of export work. In fact, that's with South Korea and Japan. Japan finally changed their constitution or put a weasel clause in there somehow. But they are now exporting warships, and they do great work, and they turn the stuff out on time, especially South Korea. They're exporting like crazy, Um, uh, and China is as well. Uh, But the thing is, China can uh, build a warship. Now, we don't know how good the Chinese warships are. That's something that you, you, you got to take into account. Um, during periods of extended peace, uh, even the best shipbuilders make mistakes. The British saw that in the Falklands um, in 1982. Uh, certain design decisions were made that uh, were changed after that war. Uh, same thing happened with the United States in the 1986 when we lost, they almost lost a, uh, a uh, destroyer uh, that was patrolling the Persian Gulf, mainly to, to keep the, uh, the Iranians from threatening uh, uh, shipping. But the Iraqis were out there, too, going after the Iranians. 
And this Iraqi uh, warplane came out there and fired an exocet missile of the American destroyer. And the destroyer didn't have its automatic defense system. The the, uh, the phalanx turned it was, on. It was actually the, the Princeton, which was a cruiser. Oh, cruiser. Well, okay. Yes. Because these days, the difference between a cruiser and a destroyer is a couple of thousand tons. Not like the old days, when cruisers were cruisers and destroyers were tin cans. But anyway, that's, that's a whole other subject. Uh, but the Chinese, for example, have so much excess capacity that they can afford, and this is what they do. They will go, after, they will go with basically subclass after subclass until they get it right. Uh, they did this with destroyers. Now, again, we don't know how right they are. They have not been in combat. But they are seriously training crews to the point where the Chinese uh, medical commu- military medicine community is complaining that, you know, uh, they, I think we discussed this once before, submarine sailors, 20% of them are having psychological problems. Of course, another problem the Chinese have is they have a huge labor shortage. And unlike their fishing boats, they can't hire foreigners at slave labor wages and conditions to uh, make up most of the crew. Uh, they only want loyal Chinese. And there aren't enough loyal Chinese anymore. Um, and uh, they're all competing for basically more attractive civilian jobs or, you know, Air Force or, or, Na- or Army jobs. If you want to go in the Chinese military, you don't go in the Navy. I think the word's getting around. And that's made recruiting even more difficult. But when it comes to building ships that on paper, appear and at sea, appear to be the equivalent of our our latest, you know, destroyers uh, and uh, and other ships. Uh, it's obvious that you know they can match us in apparent quality. I suspect they're pretty close in actual quality, but again, we'll never know unless there's a somehow the Chinese get involved in a shooting war. But whatever mistakes are made, they'll send everybody back to the yards to make adjustments or whatever. A lot of ships, uh, older warships that they're replacing, ones based on Russian designs, they're being they're having some of their weapons removed and turned into Coast Guard ships, which we're seeing pop up a lot in the uh, South China Sea. Mm-hmm. But there's the problem. Uh, we don't have the skills anymore, literally, um, and uh, our, our major opponent does. The Russians, by the way, who also don't have a – they used to have somewhat of a, a, a commercial shipbuilding uh, industry delivering to a, a captive audience, namely the, their own uh, you know, economy and the, uh, and the Eastern European satellites – the ones they were occupied. Uh, but that's all gone, and their shipbuilding capacity has gone. They're worse than we are, uh, although they weren't as good you know, as we are when our prime. But be that as it may, if you haven't got the labor base, the skills base, you're at a huge disadvantage. And if, like the United States, you've been, you've been subject to the victory disease for over half a century and all sorts of political interference, uh, it's not surprising what's happened. So, Al, what are some of the failures in the United States Navy? You <laughs> <laughs> need a longer, longer uh, you know, well, well, in one sense, it's not just a failure of the Navy. The Army and the Air Force share the problem, too. Uh, it's that we want, we want a new ship, new tank, new plane to be able to do everything, mm. which is one reason why it takes us forever to get a new design – because, you know, you're trying to balance this mission you know, uh, requirement with that mission requirement. And, you know, so you, you, you end up with something that, that doesn't work. Uh, 
part of that is fear that Congress will cut the funding, I think. And so once, you know, I mean, we're lucky. We were lucky with the uh, uh, the Burks. I mean, we got a really excellent design, uh, which was actually evolutionary, not revolutionary. People, you know, it was actually the Burks are actually sort of based on a on a, a previous destroyer design uh, that that was, uh, you know, that came out in the in the in the in the fifties and the Spruances. Uh, but after that, we started, you know, well, maybe we can do this, maybe we do that. And the LCS is probably the best. I mean, first of all, uh, it was originally supposed to be a, a, a green water and brown water, you know, resource uh, vessel, you know, patrolling the, the shallow seas are literally on the coasts, the littorals, and going up the rivers if necessary and into the bays and lagoons. And somehow it, it, it it's too big for that job and... Now we're trying to figure out what to do with them since we've invested pretty heavily in them. Uh, before World War II, the Navy had, um, if you look at, at uh, the 30s when we're, we started re- rebuilding the Navy after World War, you know, from World War One we had a big holiday not building ships because we built so many in World War One we had like 300 destroyers or something, and hundreds of them in mothballs, so if you needed a new destroyer, you just hauled one out. But by the 1930s, of course, they were getting a little wall in the tooth. If you look at the uh, orders that are placed, you've got destroyers coming out in classes of four. You know, hey, look, this looks like a good design, let's build it. And so you could actually like order 12, 12 destroyers in the three different classes. So that because each, you're not you're not sure which one is better, and in fact a couple of them did turn out to be poor. Uh, and the other thing the navy did was, since the navy had navy yards that actually could build ships, was some of these ships were built in the navy yards, and some of them were built in private yards. And the navy yards, although they were lambasted by uh, political interests uh, as supposed uh, uh, you know sinkholes of waste and all usually came in lower cost than the private yards because the private yards would add a little this and that. And the other thing that is almost never discussed is that uh, if a ship is built in a Navy yard, then there's Naval personnel there. If a ship is built in a private yard, you have to bring Navy personnel there to oversee construction. So you're not really saving any money, but you're shifting the cost from the you know, from from the shipyard budget to the navy budget, so to speak, and so they came out with you know, or eventually the hugely successful World War II destroyers like the Fletchers and the Gearings and whatnot, which were produced you know like like almost like a mimeograph machine, just coming out like mad. Uh, since we don't value certain missions. Uh, that's why we neglected the, the, the literals for so long. Uh, I can't remember what uh, I, I, the, the statistic, but I forget what percent of the Navy's personnel in Vietnam were doing work in shallow water and up rivers and whatnot. And out of that group, only one guy made it to Admiral. And this was a huge chunk of the Navy's work there. But the guys who were off off the coast on the carriers and relatively safe... Uh, you know, a lot of them made admiral. 
I mean, the aviators, of course, weren't, but uh, the other countries that are building ships have some advantages. I mean, let's face it, if you're if you're Norway or Sweden, you're not building a ship that, that has to operate in, in environments from the Arctic to the tropics. Um, but uh, some of these designs are very good, and, the, and some countries like France particularly – uh, does have interests that are in, in one sense somewhat similar to ours in that they're all over the damn globe. Uh, they, they've been better able to design smaller ships for these missions. And that's one reason why we're going with the Italian frigate. And I think uh, if you look at some of the other countries around, others are doing the same thing. They're uh, what is it? The Turks have just ordered a flock of uh, frigates, and uh, I'm trying to remember if it's the Italian design or another one. Uh, so, I, I guess you know it, it's a, it, it's not just a navy problem; it's a it's a service-wide problem. It's just like now the armed forces are suddenly deciding, hey, after 20 years of the army, after 20 years of doing um, low-intensity warfare. Uh, do we still know how to do high intensity warfare? So, and and uh, we 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 well, we we haven't had a really good bunch of people uh, in you know in the presidency and in the in the even in the in the cabinet uh, overseeing you know defense. Uh, pe- people who are not into the the, uh, the 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 dollars and cents stuff, but are into this. How does this work? Uh, which which hampers us, I think. And um, you can see the British having a serious problem. Uh, they they now have the second largest carrier fleet in the world. You know, I mean. The Queen Elizabeth and the, and the Prince of Wales are the biggest carriers in the world outside of the United States, and uh, they, their budget is is very constrained. And so they basically have one task force, and yet they still have global interests. So this creates a problem for them. Uh, one way around it for them is. Uh, there's a, fun, there's a forgotten branch of the Navy uh, that consumes a, a major chunk of the Navy's budget, and we never think about it, and that's the missile submarines. Uh, I forget what percent of the uh, the nation's nuclear capability is in the submarines, and uh, we hardly ever hear about them. Well, they're not only the silent service, they're the unseen service. The they're unseen the water service. Most of the time. Yeah. yeah. And they never do anything. Yeah. You know? yeah. Now, uh, what, they, what, what they do do is top secret. They're very yeah. good for intelligence. Yes. yes. And or the United States uh, is still very good at building boats, right? Yeah. Now, Jim, correct me if I'm wrong. It. China is still having problems building subs or nuclear de- uh, subs that can uh, deliver, can stay underwater a long time, right? And well, Ru- they, 
Russia's having problems with their subs too, right? Well, Russia has a problem and the Chinese have a similar problem. Is They're trying to build – both countries are trying to build uh, submarines with uh, air-independent propulsion. This is a system – there are several of them out there, but basically uh, they run on an electric uh, uh, motor – uh, that uses fuel that is basically uh, created without producing a lot of fumes. Uh, it's a closed system, and it basically it allows a diesel electric sub to stay underwater for up to two weeks or more. Uh, the Russians kept having problems developing it. The Chinese got one working, but they found out it was more trouble, more, more money than it was worth, and they're backing off. Uh, building a lot of their uh, diesel electric submarines uh, to the uh, to using AIP. Another ad- advance which the Japanese led the way in was using replacing the old uh, lead batteries with uh, ion lithium ion batteries. Now these were always considered dangerous because they tend to catch fire, which is un- unfortunate if you're in a submarine. But they developed technology which works. Uh, the South Koreans are copying it. The Chinese are trying to steal it, which they probably will eventually. Um, and this, again, allows your, 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 your typical pieces electric submarine to stay underwater for up to a week. Now, I think what the Chinese have figured out, uh, a submarine, a diesel electric submarine that can stay underwater for you know, a week – Operating, you know, at, at having a speed capability, but most of the time, you know, you're, those boats are quieter than nukes because they haven't got a lot of uh, cooling systems running to keep the, uh, the nuclear reactor uh, under control. Um, they realized that uh, a, a, a lithium-ion equipment, they're just the ones they have now, being able to stay underwater for two or three days or four, depending on power usage, uh, is effective enough. In other words, if they get the order, all right, we're going to war, go silent, or they get the they get the signal, they can still operate a snorkel depth that's just below the surface with a a, a, a larger mass that basically brings in water, brings in air, and lets out the, the diesel uh, exhaust. Um, that's been around since World War II. Uh, but they get the message, again, via the mast, uh, go silent, go here. Uh, even though these messages are short and they're, they're encrypted, they're vulnerable, obviously, to being cracked. Even the Chinese uh, take, took heed of what happened to the Japanese and the Germans during World War II. And um, they've apparently gained it out and realized, well, you know, this is all we really need. You know, you, you can build 50% more submarines if you leave out the AIP. And uh, once they get that lithium-ion uh, battery uh, technology, they'll have twice as much. You know, endurance underwater, which is again, they, so as far as they're concerned, they're probably right. It's more than enough. In fact, we've probably figured it out as well, because uh, our submarine tactics with an all SSN uh, nuclear powered uh, attack submarine force, we just uh, we got about fifty or so of them. Um, we we have found out. Now this is classified, so you didn't hear it from me. Uh, th- we have apparently gained it out as well, and of course we often uh, practice. You know, uh, uh, stalking uh, Russian or Chinese or anybody's submarines, North Korean or Iranian, uh, and never, never mention anything about it because it's a secret. I mean, if they knew that you're 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 successfully stalking them and not being detected ninety some percent of the time, uh, you're in big trouble. Well, they're in big trouble. I think they figured out that they can't assume that when they're out there up to some nasty business, they haven't got an SSN on their tail. 
Um, but the uh, but the Navy realizes, you know, in most cases, these stalking missions don't take that long. You're not going to stalk a guy for weeks at a time. Uh, you pick him up by long distance, you know, a passive sonar. You close in at a higher speed when you get within range of being detected by their sonars. Because even when a nuclear sub is moving at a fairly high speed, it's, it's not making a lot of noise. Um, and, that, and again, the Navy has honed these tactics over decades, so we're very good at it. And the, our potential enemies know it. Um, but they realize that once they're in contact, they're only going to be in contact for a couple of days before they, they either you know, open fire or, you know, again, they're, the guy goes back to port and they don't have to really follow him anymore. Uh, it, where the stalking business is most difficult, most problematic, is when your SPNs are being stalked. And this is one reason China isn't, isn't, isn't uh, breaking the budget uh, and expending a lot of resources on perfecting their SSBN. There's, they apparently have a, a workable sea launch ballistic missile after many failures. The Russians have a sort of uh, <laughs> uh, successful. It's got a high failure rate, but high high enough success rate to be, you know, put a dozen of them in a, in these new Bore uh, SSBNs, and, and you've got a deterrent. Um, but again, their problem is not how reliable uh, their SSBNs are and how effective their SLBMs are. But, you know, how long will your boats last if they're being stalked by the Americans? Uh, that's their problem, not ours. Uh, I mean, we're constantly – that's one reason why we're in such a hurry to build a new class, the Columbia class of SSBNs. Not – well, the Columbias are, are becoming obsolete. <laughs> uh, they're wearing out. Uh, but one of the big things that going into the Columbia is they're basically just a scaled-up, somewhat larger uh, version of the, uh, the Ohio's. I'm sorry, the Ohio class. Uh, is that uh, is they want to put more silencing in, and you can only get a lot more silencing in if you if you design it and build it from scratch. You can make modifications, but it only works up to a point. So it's really a noise war out there, noise and experience. And so far, we have an edge in both areas, but that's prone to disappear because the Chinese are making a huge effort uh, to close the qualitative gap. Uh, they can pretend that they've closed it more than they actually have, but that's how they operate. The last thing the Chinese want is a naval war. For the Chinese, a naval war would become a disaster from day one because they are not only confronted with the American Navy or the portion of the Pacific Fleet that's dedicated to China, and that's most of the Pacific Fleet, but also the South Korean and the Japanese navies. Uh, between those three navies, you know, the American faction of the fleet, our fleet, and all of the Japanese and South Korean fleet, they basically have more ships and better ships because the Japanese and the South Koreans have been putting their ships out to sea for long periods of time. Uh, even though uh, Japan has a, a late military recruiting shortage because they're running out of people, they're not reproducing, but that's another story. Uh, they're still able to man the ships. Of course, that's one reason why they can't expand their navy a lot. Uh, so they, they basically, if we're going to only have a few ships, uh, let's make sure they're, quali uh, they're quality ships. Uh, South Koreans are doing the same thing. Uh, but that puts the Chinese at a, at a disadvantage. But see, the Chinese think in the long term. They don't think about what if we go to war you know, tomorrow. No, what if we go to war in the, in the 2030s or 2040s? And that's where you got to worry. Because when they started their run, for a, a modern, efficient Navy, uh, we're talking late 1990s, 
And at that point, everybody said, oh, come on, you're so far behind us. But, you know, if you measure things in decades, uh, they weren't so far behind at all. And now they're a lot closer than they were uh, 20 years ago. So, Al, tell us a little bit about the troubles that countries are having with their aircraft carriers. Um, there are sort of uh, three three types of aircraft carriers. I mean, there are the U.S. type carriers, uh, you know, fairly large, and uh, to be to be somewhat generous, you can certainly include the Brit and the French uh, carriers, although they're about forty. Well, they're about 60% the size of a U.S. carrier and have some different uh, design features and whatnot. Um, then you have uh, the, uh, uh, the sort of com combined helicopter carriers that Italy and, and several other – Italy, uh, Japan, Korea are building or have built, uh, which, which uh, can operate – fixed-wing airplanes because of the aircraft, because of the, uh, the ski jump, um, but are, uh, are better suited to uh, helicopters and um, vertical takeoff, which is kind of neat stuff, but it's very expensive and imposes some design restrictions on your ship that uh, could be restrictive, um, could be, uh, uh, could make it difficult to, to build ships uh, in numbers. Um, all that heat coming down on the deck as the plane lands is um, requires special construction. And then, of course, um, the U.S. has a, a flock, and several other countries have a flock of just plain helicopter carriers, uh, primarily for, for amphibious. You know, for, well, we don't use the word, but triphibious operations, landing troops from the sea, um, you know, through the air. Um, most countries that build them seem to be happy with them. Uh, China is um, is working off a Russian design, so they're, they're um, uh, we're talking about a 40-year-old ship at this point, I think. I think, yeah, 40 years. God, it's a long time. Uh, and slowly building new ones. They're not building nuclear yet, uh, which may be a design problem. Or maybe a cost-saving measure. Uh, it depends on what they want to do with them. I mean, uh, assuming China has uh, ambitions, uh, obviously they have ambitions in the South China Sea, and uh, what do they call it, the, the island barriers? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, They want Taiwan. Uh, do they want to go beyond that? Uh, if they want to go beyond that, the carriers they're building are probably not good enough. Uh, on the other hand, they can build a lot of them. I mean, it takes us seven years to build a, a carrier that is unquestionably better than anything they've got, but they can build three or four of them at that in that time w without any trouble. I mean, uh, so uh, – and learning how to use carriers, of course, e even with the knowledge that that you could you can sort of borrow from the other countries that have you know m much greater experience with carriers uh, you you have to be able to operate the damn things for a long period um, and have the combat experience that gives you all sorts of little trick tricks um, that I'm sure there are plenty that that we never hear about um, 
one of the things I think that's interesting is that uh, Italy and Japan are not supposed to have aircraft carriers on the basis <laughs> of the treaties at the end of World War II. Now, they got away with them by calling them other things and by operating helicopters. But now that they're operating fixed-wing airplanes, uh, well, you know, the treaties that ended World War II are now uh, 70 years in the past, so maybe people will just, uh, you know, politely forget about that. But I could see someone trying to make a fuss over it uh, at some point. Uh, the French are now sending their uh, carrier, I think, uh, into the Indian Ocean, which should be quite interesting. The, uh, the British have, um, well, presumably will be sending one of their carriers. They're still working up, uh, and that's uh, that takes a while. As far as we're concerned, uh, the Ford suffers from the same problem that most of the rest of our ships suffer from, and that is that we piled so much new ideas into it, uh, it may or may not be very effective. I mean, it's, uh, I forget how many years behind schedule to begin with, and it's still it's not... four now, four yeah. counting. <laughs> yeah, and it's still not commit. you know, I mean, it's been commissioned, but it's still not worked up, obviously. Um... So uh, I'm sort of in I'm sort of in favor of going going the British route. Um, somewhat smaller ships, you can have a few more, which is probably helpful. Um, when, you know, don't don't try to don't try to be a jack of all trades. Just just uh, you know specialize them. Uh, to some extent, uh, the other the other problem we have with them is uh, the Air Force still doesn't like aircraft carriers, and uh, it, which is interesting because, of course, uh, you know, on one on one level it's true. I mean, you know, if you have if you have air bases and whatnot, you, you're probably going to be able to do a better job than you know a couple of aircraft carriers are going to do. But it's awful hard to get an air base where you need it. And uh, you know, the example of the Korean War. Or um, uh, when we went into Afghanistan in in uh, in 2000, uh, 2001. I mean, most of the sorties were from carriers. I mean, the Air Force did a you know fl flew some F-15s uh, to one of the Arab states, and then from there were, were running some missions. But most most of the missions were, were being done from carriers and. Uh, you won't find that credited very much in uh, Air Force literature. Um, so we do need a better integration of our carriers into the into the national air power picture, I think, which would probably ease some of the problems carriers have, although it won't ease the uh, uh, you know the design problems for a while. It's sort of like making a uh, A, a Lamborghini that can also, you know, drive in jungles and deserts and, you know, and New York traffic and stuff like that. 
and we have to decide what we want to do. Do we want more Lamborghinis or do we want more ATVs? Um, and of course, we have a sole source problem. Every U.S. carrier is built by one company. And it is the only place that can build carriers anymore since the Navy Yards, although they still have the uh, um, the few remaining Navy Yards, I should say, uh, still still have the the, uh, the the graving docks where you could you could build a ship. They don't have any uh, facilities to build ships. Um, one of one of the good things about a dry dock is, of course, it, it never never gets old. You know, I mean, as you can one of the uh, one of the docks at uh, Hoboken when the uh, when the, uh, the 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 QE2 no it wasn't the QE2 it was one of the more the other more uh, more modern liners had some problems uh, a number of years ago they took it into a dock that hadn't been used in like 30 years but uh, you know you just turn the taps and it works um, i think the biggest problem with carriers is if we have a full-up war, we cannot replace losses in any kind of, you know, time, short time. And we can't even repair a major carrier in, in, in any kind of short, short uh, time. So what we, you know, the Chinese with their smaller vessels and their... Uh, larger resources and construction have a huge edge. In, this, in the Second World War, uh, something that is, is generally ignored, it wasn't so much the sinking of cargo ships that was a threat to the supply line to Britain as it was the shortage of facilities to repair ships. So eventually we reached a point where we were building ships so fast we didn't bother repairing them anymore. But for a while, the real bottleneck was you couldn't repair ships fast enough to get them back to sea. And that's our, our problem. Uh, I think we have to think about that in terms of, of uh, a potential uh, war at sea in, in the future. Uh, I think, does that answer your question? Yeah. So, yeah. Jim, yeah. Jim right. let's focus on Russia for the last part of our discussion. What has happened with their shipbuilding capabilities, and are they even producing any new warships? Well, the basic problem is when the Cold War ended in 1991 and, and Russia lost half its, its population and a lot of its territory, they also freed the serfs. <laughs> I mean, as I tell people, you know, who look at me incredulously, one thing the communists did was they reintroduced serfdom. Serfdom meaning you couldn't you move, you, you state controlled where you worked uh, and what you did. Uh, it was basically serfdom all over again. But when 1991 came, one thing the Russian people insisted on was no more restrictions on where we can work uh, or immigration and what have you. And promptly, a lot of the more competent people left because the, the Russian economy was a mess because it was still based upon the command economy the communists had used to run their Russian uh, economy into the ground. Um, and uh, one of the last places any competent engineer wanted to work was in a military plant, especially a naval yard. And the Russian Navy yards were not paragons of efficiency even during the Cold War when they got a lot of money. 
uh, Russia never really had a major shipbuilding industry like the other contenders, as it were. During World War II uh, and for some years thereafter, the United States was just the largest shipbuilder in the world, period. You know, merchant ships, that's what that's what won World War II. We were turning out most of the ships, uh, both, you know, the victory ships and the and the other, you know, the cargo ships. Uh, as Al pointed out, we turned out so many of them. If anyone got into uh, had a problems and needed some shipyard repairs, <laughs> there was a long line. Uh, so you basically wrote that ship off. It was easier to build a new one. In one case, they built a victory ship in 24 hours, uh, just to show you know how how what they could do. But nowadays the situation is reversed. China is the only country. Well, China and South Korea. Uh, and uh, and Japan are the only countries that can rapidly build a warship. Uh, they have the manpower, they have the yards, and uh, like China, all three of those countries are dependent upon Australia <laughs> for raw materials. You want coking coal, you want iron ore, you got to go to Australia. Uh, and they're the major producer in that part of the world. Otherwise, you might be able to go to the Americas, but that is an uncertain source because it's so far away. Um, so the Chinese have problems that the United States did not have during World War II. So there's never going to be another World War II again. Basically, you're going to go to war with the with the Navy you have, and the only replacements are going to be much cheaper. Now, one thing we're doing, I don't know if we're doing this consciously, but we have energetically uh, gone into uh, the process of equipping the uh, amphibious ships, uh, which we have over 20, I think it's close to 30 now, uh, to operate F-35Bs. These are the vertical takeoff. Well, actually, they're, they're so ball. They can, they can take off uh, from a deck over a, a ski jump deck or even a catapult carrying more weight, as it were, or they can take off, uh, you know, vertically, but, you know, with a much reduced uh, war load, you know, of, of bombs and missiles. But given the fact that all everything we use now in terms of uh, dropping from planes is guided, you know, that's much less of a restriction than it was in the past. But our allies are doing the same thing. Uh, you know, uh, Russia, not Russia, uh, uh, South Korea, uh, Japan, uh, and... Um, and uh, some European countries, well, uh, are also looking around doing the same thing. Now, they don't have as many of these amphibious warships as we have. In fact, uh, Turkey, which is receiving its first uh, LHD, LHD, I believe, uh, it was, I think the Spanish built it. Navatinia? Is that that's Spanish, right. 26, 27,000 tons. But they, even before they, 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 how should I put it? Even before they got uh, thrown out of the F-35 program in 2019, first one's supposed to be uh, by mid-year to this year. It's supposed to enter service, and they're thinking about ordering another one. Uh, uh, they realized, oh my God, we lost our our F-35B. Now they hadn't ordered any F-35Bs, but as long as they were in the F-35 program, they had the option to, and they were seriously considering. Up until 2019. So what have the, you know, uh, innovation is often born out of uh, desperation. So what the uh, what the Turks going to do now is they have a new UFV that was already uh, in the works. This is the backyard. The TB2, they deployed hundreds of these in Syria, uh, Libya, uh, Armenia, and various other theaters. And they've all performed very successfully, even though these this model only has a payload of 150 kilograms. 
uh, but they can devote about two-thirds of that to uh, missiles, and they have produced at least four different uh, laser-guided missiles, uh, which weigh uh, uh, less than half of what the Hellfire weighs. So they were just lucky. But what they're doing now is they're having the they're having their they're planning on modifying their uh, their first uh, L, you know, LHD, which has a ski jump. They kept that in. That was a feature of the Navitity because they they operated. Uh, they have already Harriers and various other aircraft off these ones, uh, but they have to modify it to be able to uh, launch uh, the larger, about one ton, Bakhtiar uh, 3, which was already in the works, uh, and also modify it. They have to navalize it, folding wings, uh, you know, tail hook and what have you. Um, they don't have to worry about losing pilots in, in getting the landing and takeoff software, especially the landing software, to work because they're unmanned. Uh, but they're, they're very cocky right now, and they haven't got much choice because their idea of having a, 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 a amphibious ship slash you know, light aircraft carrier uh, is gone, and they have to improvise. And they'll probably be successful because they're eager, they're desperate, and they have no choice. Uh, it's something the U.S. Navy is, is considered, but the Navy was never as desperate as the Turks are. Um, and, and some of our allies who can get uh, the um, uh, the F-35B, they're content to go with that because that is a superior, you know, aircraft operator off these uh, these uh, well, we used to call them jeep carriers in World War II, but these amphibious ships. But I think the Navy experimented with taking one of their larger amphibious ships. And and shipping out with 16 F-16 uh, Bs, that's about the the, uh, the maximum capacity. One one advantage yes. the Turks have in their their LHD, as ordered, it was built to have a a movable you know a large movable you know bulkhead between the the hangar deck, which was only about uh, 3,000 square feet or whatever it was. It was 9,900 cubic meters. I forget the translation for that. But anyway. Uh, but there was a uh, there was a vehicle deck which was next to the the uh, well deck where they had some amphibious craft to take off tanks, other armored vehicles, trucks, what have you. Uh, they can quickly you know modify this, open up that that large door between the uh, the two uh, spaces, and triple the space of their of their carrier. And they had they realized that they could put at least a dozen. Uh, F-35Bs on there, but if they can get their their navalized uh, uh, new uh, UFV, which has a larger capacity and a longer range, et cetera, et cetera, uh, they could put over 30 of them on this 27,000 ton amphibious ship. Uh, they have no choice if they want to if they want to embark, you know, fixed wing warplanes. Uh, on their new uh, carrier without access to the F-35B. I mean, there is no other competition. During the Cold War, you had the Harrier, which actually went through three generations. Uh, uh, we talk about two, the Carrier 1 and the and the, Car- and the Harrier 2. Uh, uh, but these were much less efficient and effective as the, the B-35B. In fact, much of what made the B-35B a success was learning from all the problems they had with even the improved uh, Harrier. The Russians had a uh, what was he? Uh, well, they had something yeah. like thirty-nine, yeah, mid thirty-nine or whatever it was, um, which was really it was so bad that as soon as the Cold War ended, that got added to the the growing junk pile 
of uh, ships and aircraft that were no longer needed. It never really worked. In fact, the, the Russians are taking great, uh, how should I put it, uh, pride in the fact that the Chinese are having such big problems with their carrier jet, the J-15, which is basically a copy of the Su-33, which was a variant of the Su-27, which is basically their F-15, uh, that was navalized to replace the MiG-29, which never worked very well. Uh, and it, the Su-33 didn't work uh, very well, but it worked better than MiG-29. Um, but the Chinese, when they copied the, the Su-33, I think they bought one or two of them, early models, uh, they have not been able to work all the kinks out. And they're really, that's one limitation on their, their, their carrier construction, aside from the government not willing to throw a lot of money at carriers that uh, they, they won't need for a while, a couple of decades, um, uh, when they don't really have a, a, a reliable fixed-wing jet to operate from it. Uh, so what, what the big game-changer in, in carrier warfare you know, in the last 10 years, is the realization that that F-35, you know, stealth, you know, vertical takeoff stealth fighter is a game changer for a lot of countries who want naval, effective naval aviation. Because if you have a couple of amphibious ships, and some countries are buying amphibious ships just for that option, you know, putting some, buying some uh, F-35Bs, sticking them on there, and having a real threat. And this is the, the thing that a lot of uh, critics of the Navy have put forward, more small carriers. Well, there, there's all sorts of arguments for and against that, but basically they're not as effective. But it depends on what kind of war you're fighting for. And this is something the Air Force would never admit, as Al points out. After World War II, uh, sure, we had more and more naval bases all over the world, but they were sitting targets, literally. Uh, and the Navy could move their airfields, which are much more difficult targets to hit. Not as difficult now with the Chinese and the Russians uh, developing weapons, what they call, which they, you know, impolitely call uh, carrier killers. Uh, but the Navy still has these mobile airfields, which, in a pinch, which has been the normal condition you know, since World War II, there's always been an emergency, and the Air Force says, "Well, give us about six, eight, twelve. 20 months, and then we'll have big capacity there, whereas the Navy was already there. As Al points out, the Navy doesn't like to, the Air Force doesn't like to dwell on that, but it's still the situation. Uh, the, the, the Air Force practices, you know, a rapid deployment to a, uh, to a, how should I put it, an unprepared airfield. Uh, they have special task forces to do this, uh, but they don't have that many of them, and they really can't put that many aircraft you know, into these out of the way areas, and they aren't really equipped. You need, you know, you need supplies, you need repair facilities, and so the the, the Air Force is learning the hard way that there's no way they can replace the capability of aircraft carriers. And a lot of other countries are realizing that too. And of course, they're also cognizant of the fact that you don't need a lot of carrier aircraft carrying a lot of bombs because you've got everybody's using. Mostly everybody is using, you know, guided bombs and guided missiles. So you, you need a fraction of the number of uh, bombs and missiles that a World War II or a pre-1990s, a pre, you know, GPS and, and laser-guided, you know, missile uh, era uh, required. Um, and suddenly, a lot of countries are realizing that, hey, we can have that. And that's why the Japanese are building all these helicopter destroyers. 
which I think some of them are even being named after World War II carriers, one mm-hmm. of them at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Japanese aren't getting any pushback because we've been on their case for years to, you know, hey, you know, change your constitution or, or build in an escape clause, which they did, uh, and start building this stuff. And, of course, the Japanese also realized that, hey, now they can export this stuff for defensive purposes only. Um, and they're doing that, and they're competing for export sales because they are still a premier uh, shipbuilding and naval shipbuilding uh, power, which we aren't. And it's all for the same reasons. Uh, we haven't got the yards. We haven't got the manpower base, the skills base. Um, and uh, that as 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 Japan found out in World War Two, they they painfully, at great expense, considering their GDP, you know, before World War Two, they built up this huge fleet, but they couldn't replace it, and we all replaced them. Well, that that's a good place for us to end. We're out of time, uh, and we'll talk to you, gentlemen, next time we meet. Bye. Indeed.